Hey, welcome to another episode of the Art of Outreach. My name is Mike Mitchell, and I am the art director of Mount Pleasant Schools here in historically rural Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. Today we are recording at Mount Pleasant High School, which is actually 50 years old this year. I'm also the director of community outreach for the Tennessee Art Education Association. We have um, really excited about our guest today, Brianna Burtzell, who's a teacher of art at Hillsborough High School in Nashville, Tennessee, in the Metro Nashville Public School System. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So we really had to stop ourselves there because we were really doing the podcast. We just started chatting, and we have people in common that we know who we love. And so I, we had to really pull the reins and say, "Whoa, let's let's actually start pressing record because we were missing really great stuff." Um, so just to kind of go back um, to where we were, kind of in our pre-interview. Um, why art education? And okay, well, my story is probably not the typical path for why art education. Um, so I think I've always had an interest in art my whole life. And um, when I was in middle school, I had a teacher who now is a teacher myself, I can tell was probably just burnt out at the time. And uh, I told her I wanted to be an artist when I grew up, and she said, that's not a real job. So I went into high school thinking, what else am I going to do? I don't know what else. So I thought maybe I'll be a writer. Or um, So I took the art classes in high school anyway. And my sophomore year, I did a sculpture of some kind. And uh, a student sitting next to me was like, that's really good. You should be an artist. And I said, that's not a real job. My art teacher came flying across the room at me <laughs> to say, what do you mean it's not a real job? And um, it was a comprehensive high school, so he took me down to the graphics shop and showed me, um, you know, how the world works with advertising and, you know, shirt design and logos and business cards and how important um, art was and all the jobs that you could get in the arts. Um, and it made me very excited, so I got into the graphics program, and I was in that for the next two years. Um, I got a cooperative education job with a local graphics business and so my senior year I went there instead of going to school on my graphics days um, and was able to get a job at a small magazine after graduation and so um, even though I had gotten into art school financially it was not a possibility for me right after high school so I worked for a year in the field and I really enjoyed that and decided you know I'd like to get a higher up job in this field and that's going to require a bachelor's degree. So um, after a year off, I went to art school. I went to Montserrat College of Art in uh, Massachusetts. I'm from Maine originally. And um, uh, got my Bachelor of Fine Arts in graphic design. Totally convinced I was going to be a graphic designer because that's what I had been studying for so long. And then um, after I graduated, my college roommate's uncle was a masonry teacher at a local technical high school, and their design teacher was going out on maternity leave. He said, well, you haven't found a job quite yet. You just graduated. Maybe you could do this for a couple of months and get a paycheck while you figure out, you know, until I get a real job. <laughs> and um, I got to be that graphics instructor that changed my life in high school. And I fell in love with it immediately. And I really couldn't imagine going into an office and designing ads for chicken or whatever it was anymore. I just wanted to inspire these other students um, to get these real world skills in the subject that they loved. Who was that art teacher who said, what do you mean it's not a real job? Do you remember who it that was? Mr. Stevens. Um, and he helped me put together my portfolio for applying to college. Um, he also set me up with, I used to tutor elementary students in art as well when I was in high school. So he set me up with those opportunities. And, is he still um, teaching? Yeah, a big difference. Is he still teaching? I, I think he has retired at this point. Okay. Have you been in touch with him to let him know that, like, how much of that, like, how much he changed I, that trajectory? Yeah, it's really, it's really a big influence that he had on me, but also my 
graphics instructor. Right. Right. That's, that's a, that's really cool. So let's talk a little bit now, cause I, I want to jump into what's going on in your classroom, but how much of that graphics practice that you were doing professionally, were you also like, once you made that shift into graphics, did, did, is that where all your energy went or were you still making sculpture? Were you still making work, um, outside of, outside of your job? So graphics was my first love once I discovered it in, in high school, but um, very closely behind that is photography for me. Um, and when I got my BFA, um, you have to take all of those classes. So I definitely still continue to practice my drawing and sculpture and, and learn more about painting. And I think, um, you know, as I've been a teacher, this is my 16th year, um, every time I've had to teach something new, um, that it was not something that I particularly studied immersively. Um, it forced me to practice it outside of the classroom as well, just so that I would understand my own connection to it and try to navigate through what the issues might be for my students at the same time. It's, it's something that I think every time I see it where someone is an artist who educates, I always see who, who really likes teaching. I'm sure there are situations where someone who is an artist who also is a teacher and they don't really like the gig and so they maybe don't go all in. But for the people who um, had a studio practice or were already making art and then found out this thing that they were like, oh, I really love teaching as well and they aren't doing it because it's the only thing they can do um, or they're doing it just for a paycheck. I have found when there's an artist who educates, right? Like, so my friend Joe Christie, who is retired now, but like he drew and made art every day in front of his kids and really did kind of like, um, you know, kind of uh, the tab approach, right? So like teaching for artistic behavior, you know, like those classrooms are, those kids work are always so strong and the kids are always so confident and the kids are having such a good time. So I am such a proponent for that creative practice, whatever that creative practice is. Um, are you showing your work when you make work is it does it live on social media does it live in a gallery setting are you making it just for yourself and then it just like what does that look like now that you you know you have this full-time thing that you thought was going to be a two-week or two-month thing that you know you were doing but now it's your career 16 years later um are you still showing your work well it's funny that you ask that because when i totally understand and agree with you on what you just said about um, teachers who are artists um, are, are better, almost better teachers or you see them being more involved. But to be honest with you, at this point in my life, teaching is, is my passion and that is more um, of my focus than being an artist. I mean, being an artist is who I am. It's not something I can ever disconnect from. I remember I was in a book club this spring and we were reading a book that talked about you know, tapping into your creativity, and immediately, it was a teacher book club, and all the other teachers were like, we want to hear from Brie first, <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't have to tap into it, it's a, it's something that never shuts off for me, you know, um, it's the way that I see the world, it's the way that I interpret the world, um, but being a teacher, I mean, I've joked around, but kind of seriously before, where people ask me what my medium of choice is, and I'll say teenagers, um, like, teenagers are my medium, and sometimes it's a very challenging medium to work with. And, <laughs> um, you know, like, that's that's really how I feel. I feel that my students and my curriculum, that's my artwork, first and foremost. Um, second to that, um, I do a lot of side work, um, I would call it. So I just, I'm designing a logo and business cards right now for a client. Um, I've done videography, uh, wedding videos, wedding photography, but I also have like my own social media pages and I will post my work there as well. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely less of my focus. Well, it sounds like it is the, when you said it's the, it sounds like it, the artwork that you're making on your own is just the research for your main passion. I would, yeah, absolutely would say that. And to add to the research, um, we were just talking before about, I, I try to go to all the art crawls if I can, engage myself with meeting our local artists so that I can use them as 
use resources to connect our students better to curriculum um, and know what's happening at the Frist and at Cheekwood and nationally in the arts. Um, and I think that the research and the engagement in these um, in these art events is also part of my artwork and <laughs> bringing it into the teaching. Sure, it's like kind of that social practice idea, right? Like that everything that you're doing is part of it. Um, Bobby Negron, who is, uh, I interviewed a couple episodes back. I talked about, I was asking her about her practice and she's like, I don't really do art. She goes, you know, I'm a DJ on, on Workers' Dignity Radio. I also, she co-founded Workers' Dignity, which is a workers' rights nonprofit in Nashville. And she does a lot of um, work with them in advocating for workers. And so there's a lot of... Um, sign making, t-shirt printing, and I was like, Bobby, all of that sounds like art to me. And she's, you know, she talked about how it flows in and out of her classroom. And so I do think that that is, um, um, that is something that I think more and more people, um, are doing and starting to really take ownership of and not being and in the way I wasn't I don't mean to, but I can also understand how what I said could be perceived as this kind of like, if you're not making art, there's some sort of shame in that of like, you're an art teacher, you should be making art, as opposed to my idea is much closer to like, I want, I'm always curious how someone can be an art teacher, but doesn't have a creative practice in some way, shape or form, even if it's the classroom itself, and that they think about it in those ways of kind of how to... You know, Jennifer Lamb, who teaches at Spring Hill High School, I don't think would have described herself the way you did, but that's how her classroom is. She does a Google, uh, I don't know if it's Google, but she does a survey after every single project that she gives. And she's 18 or 20 years in, and she's great at what she does. And she still gives a survey after every single project to make sure the kids value what she's doing. And, And I just think that's such a cool thing to do is to... Like she could, she's totally got it dialed in. She could easily just kind of coast into retirement. And that's not an interest that she has at all because she, like you, has chosen teenagers as her medium of choice. Yeah, I think, and I mean, when you ask about like what artwork do I do personally, I think that a part of that question is asking, you know, how I keep myself interested in continuing to teach art for all these years, right? Because you think like if you're continuing to make art, then you're continuing to grow as an artist, which helps you engage in your teaching practice. But I think similarly, staying engaged in what's happening in the arts in your community also helps you to stay interested and engaged in creating new curriculum. Um, I also do a similar survey at the end of my projects. I call it a reflection sheet. And I ask them to reflect on their process. Um, And after the reflection of their process, I ask, know what could have made this project better is it materials is it explanation is it examples is it what what can I do when I teach this again that's gonna make this better on your end Um, and and that's something that I've done forever as well and I get the best feedback I mean better than any feedback I've ever gotten in an evaluation from administration you know the kids are gonna tell you I didn't get this part or this part was challenging or this part was really fun do this again Are you telling me not getting a numerical number, like numerical, like association with like how you did pacing is not (laughs) as valuable as hearing 15 kids write really important, rich, deep, like dialogue? I don't, I don't know about that. Like surely you just want three, four, five, two, and then move on with your day. Double that. Sorry, we are currently have that many because some are remote and some are. So I just, those are new numbers. Yes, you are. You have, when I taught at Maplewood High School, I had 39 on rosters and then 42 on rosters, which is technically, that's a long time ago, so I can say it. Like, technically, that's not legal. (laughs) Um, So that's a real, I love that so much. And I also love that you really helped me reframe my question on studio creative practice moving forward because I feel like it's two parts. So what's your studio creative practice or like, what is it that you do to stay excited about teaching art? Right. So I think that's, that's really great because these interviews are evolving each and every time. And that's why I like to talk to so many different people. Um, the very, that 
segues perfectly into the conversation about outreach. Juan Rojo, who teaches in um, in Memphis, Tennessee, in Memphis uh, public schools, I was talking about outreach. He's like, I don't really do outreach. He's like, but we we've been doing all these murals around the school, and it it occurred to me that like I'm not I was defining outreach too narrowly, or letting the idea of outreach that we all kind of collectively have agreed, which means like me and you are going to go to like the a local food shelter and pack bags with food, and that's what outreach means. Or we're going to make the logos for some, like that outreach is only this narrowly defined idea of how we're helping. And Juan really taught me that, like, what does outreach look like in your school, in your classroom, as a much better question. So you sound like you are out and about a lot. Um, I know that, and we'll get to it in a minute, I know your students were on Channel 5 News because they were working with Nissan. And so that in and of itself, that outreach of like putting art in a high school art program from a public school on the same level of like this multinational company, like that's outreach in and of itself of like, wow, how awesome is that? That Nissan could have picked anyone in town, right? And here it is, here's Hillsborough High School as getting this, you know, their card got pulled. And so... How do you navigate that? Is it something you even have to think about? Or is it like your classroom? It's just a natural part of what you do and how your students live their lives of like, we're here to do this thing and, and we're sharing it with the world. You know, it's really funny. I have done community outreach every year that I've been teaching in different ways. And um, it started my first year teaching when I started to get to know my students more and discovered so many talents that they had, um, performing arts, um, singing, poetry, they had bands, um, all of these really great dance kind of things. And so I thought to do a coffee house, you know, I had just come from art school, so we had coffee houses all the time. And I said, let's do a coffee house where you can exhibit these other talents and let's make it a charity event. Let's ask for food donations or for monetary donations let's have everybody come out. It was like right before Christmas and we donated it to a local food bank. And that just kind of instilled in me as a teacher that helping the community is something I always wanted to teach my students because number one, um, they get more invested in what they're doing um, when they know that they're helping other people. And number two, I like to show them how their artwork can make a difference in the world. And so it developed into, we had a coffee house for three years, and then I ended up going to a new school, and I started working with the district attorney's office in Massachusetts, and they had a new high-risk domestic violence campaign that they were going to be launching, and they reached out to see if my students could design a logo for it, because it was a nonprofit that was not going to be funded by the state. So all of the lawyers and law enforcement and DA office people that were on this task force were volunteering their time to try to help this cause. So when I found that out, I said, you know, you guys are going to need more than a logo. You're going to need advertising, posters. You know, you need a lot more in promotions. How about if we do that for you? Um, and we ended up creating a phone app um, and many more things for the district attorney's office over the course of the next few years. Um, and my students were very happy to do that. Um, then I moved to Nashville. And I actually taught elementary art at a local charter school here for a couple years. And I thought, how can I do this with little kids? <laughs> so we ended up having um, two things. My fourth graders created artwork for Ronald McDonald House Charities. We have one here in Nashville. And the parents stay at Ronald McDonald House while their children are at Vanderbilt. Um, and I had visited, and they had just had their common space redone by one of those uh, husband and wife redecorating teams so that was beautiful but then I asked her to show me the rooms where the parents stayed and that was very plain and gray no artwork on the walls and I'm like this is where they're spending their time because they're if they're not here they're in the hospital so uh, my students my fourth graders created um, over a hundred pieces of artwork to be put in all the rooms and um, just to try to make a little happy difference and, and a little it was called um, what's it called we're with you was the name of the campaign. So um, on each piece of artwork, it said, we're with you. Like just to try to make these visitors feel like they're not alone. Um, we also did end of the year art shows where um, you could buy 
your, your students work and that money would go to Second Harvest Food Bank. Um, and I'm not sure what we did last year off the top of my head, but I feel like that's, <laughs> that's probably enough examples of the work that I've tried to engage my students in. Sure. And it sounds like it's, it's, you allow it to be organic. You allow it to like art re- Outreach for you isn't, though I do like the word art reach that, that I stumbled on for a second there. Um, it sounds like art outreach for you becomes an organic process of, you know, maybe someone says something or asks you this and then, you know, and I love that you, um, and we can talk about this here in a second, how your nameplate that says Brianna Bertzel, president of ideas, I love how you got that initial, Hey, can you do a logo? And you said, you could have said yes. And then you could have done the logo and you could have put it on social media or in a newsletter at the time and said, look, we did a logo that helped these, these folks out. Right. And instead you said, well, what is it that you really need? Like what's going on here? You asked that deeper question of like, what all is this? Cause you need that. And I would guess, I would argue that would probably come back to your, your design background of like, hey, to know, to know what this logo needs to, to, to say, I need to know what your why is. I need to, as opposed to just like, hey, give me the words and we'll make it, you know, and then all of a sudden it's not a good logo because it doesn't actually tell the story, right? So I love that you are immediately figuring out ways to grow that into a process that really made sense. Um, and so it sounds like your outreach that your your it can be large and small. It's it's never it doesn't always have to be that in depth thing. It can also be these other things. Um, I interviewed Beth Reitmeyer, and she she was talking about you know at its base level art in and of itself is outreach because once you share it, it becomes like once you've put it out there, it becomes shared, and then by sharing it, you've created community. And so just the very nature of making work, kids making work and showing it outside of their classroom becomes outreach because it's creating community, because it's creating these conversations. And so um, that was another, again, another kind of one of those moments for me of like when we're talking to people is like just continuing to define what outreach is and um, and kind of going back to your teacher, Mr. Stevens, like we forget sometimes that art is enough. It's its own job. It is real. It has outreach built into it because if someone sees a work of art and they get a feeling from it, we've done something in this world, right? So, I mean, um, you're actually reminding me of, so like, there's two things. One, um, yes, I agree with what you just said. And um, I think there's also those students, because I identify myself as that student as well, that may need that real world application of why we're doing this to really fully be invested. And I think particularly um, with the students that maybe naturally don't wanna create artwork on their own, the ones that are in art class because it's a required class, but if you give them an actual real world application, and especially if it's helping others, um, you'll find more of that investment and engagement in the art process. Mm -hmm. Um, It reminds me of actually a quote um, by Glennon Doyle in her book, Untamed, that really resonated with me. Um, It says, Good art originates not from the desire to show off, but the desire to show yourself. Art always comes from our desperate desire to be seen, to be heard, to be loved. Art makes us feel less lonely because it always comes from the desperate center of the artist, and each of our centers is desperate. That's why good art is such a relief. Hmm. And so I think what you're saying about, you know, art for art's sake is still... Um, outreach because the people that are looking at it are connecting with it and maybe you made them feel seen or made them feel loved yeah I, I mean that's that's the that was to me that was Beth's her very own outreach to me is like kind of just reminding me of that idea I think that sometimes you know the art for art's sake and maybe rightfully so if you're looking historically at, you know, some of the ways that the kind of uppercase like art world dealt with things like, you know, got it. That idea is kind of got a bad name of like, nope, there's not supposed to be any feelings or meaning like this is just, this is this thing sitting here and you're supposed to experience that thing, which if they would have been doing that work now, they would have just called it mindfulness 
and we would have been able to get on board with it a lot easier, right? To experience without judgment, this thing that's sitting in front of us, not in relationship to Monet, but in relationship to like, what are we looking at? But, you know, the, the some of the cranky, those, some of those kind of cranky conceptualists were a little less, uh, you know, I think just the language they used was a, a, um, sometimes a little rigid for people, but but I do like what, what you're saying. Also, what Beth said is that, and that really does establish that reign of outreach, right? Like these really elaborate processes and projects where there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of reasons. There are a lot of whys. And then this other thing of, I want to make this thing that's a, you know, in, in very traditional medium to tell this story to, to, to kind of, to, to, so that someone can engage with it. Um, so thinking of like making things and outreach and how like what a wide variety there is, you know, your social media right now, if you go to Brianna's um, Instagram page, which we'll put in the show notes, there's uh, your kids are painting on this brand new Nissan automobile. How did that come about? All right. Um, yeah, it was so fun. So um, I have a friend that works for Nissan actually, and um, she works in their marketing department and they have been discussing how they could promote a new orange color in their, in their vehicles. And they thought about like Halloween is coming up and then tying it to the way that celebrations have been happening during this pandemic, um, with graduations and birthdays being a driven experience. We're decorating cars and we're driving through neighborhoods and honking horns and celebrating in the safest way that you can with cars actually being a big part of that. So they thought, well, maybe we could get some students to decorate a car um, for Halloween and use that to not only promote this new orange color, but to promote a safe way to celebrate another holiday during the pandemic. So um, they actually reached out and asked if we would be interested. And at the time I thought, oh, are they going to have like high schools around the country? And then it's a competition. Um, but it actually wasn't a competition. Um, it was just us that they asked. And, um, it was, it was really amazing to be back with students in real life. Um, I reached out to five of my students who I had in class last year because, I had them in an upper level class and this year I'm teaching all art one and don't really know my students in person yet. So, <laughs> um, I reached out to these five upperclassmen and I said, Hey, there's this opportunity. It will be a national, um, ad campaign. It will be, um, it's actually international because Nissan Ontario tweeted about us and Instagrammed about us and put the videos all over their account. So I don't know. Um, but it was, so great to be able to reach out to my students and say, hey, I need some sketches. I need some ideas. Let's meet. Um, we got there in person. We looked at the sketches, and they just got to work. And any teacher will be able to relate to what I'm about to say. In the classroom, you hear your name called at least 100 times a day, and you start to wish you didn't have a name. <laughs> and... Um, not being able to like be in a classroom since March, I'm in this studio and I'm with my five students and I'm constantly hearing, Miss Brutzel, can you come look at this? Miss Brutzel, what do you think I should add? And I was so ecstatic just to be needed. <laughs> so um, Nissan had a crew, uh, camera crews and video crews, News Channel 5 stopped by to interview my students live while they were working on the car. It was just a wonderful experience overall. What will happen with that car? Is it just there, you know, do you know what will happen with it? Like, are they going to sell that car? Is it going to become part of a collection or? Well, at first they took it to Nissan headquarters um, and it was displayed for a week there. It was then it moved around to different dealerships to be put on display to promote the car and the color orange. Um, it's currently at Action Nissan here in Nashville, and on Friday, tomorrow, they're moving it to our Hillsboro Pearl Cone football game um, to promote the car to our student body, but also to um, the live local news outlets that will be there to cover the football game as well. Um, and then I think they're going to keep shipping it around a little bit, and eventually they're going to crush it 
They're going to destroy the car, which we all pleaded to take from them free of charge. Um, <laughs> but apparently the, it was not a two standard safety model built car, so they could not sell it legally. They had to. They'll have to crush it eventually, which is kind of sad. But Maybe they'll give you the hood with that pumpkin on it. Like you could, cool. you could install that, right? Like pull the doors off. I mean, you could you could kind of split it apart into a, a sculpture. That's really really cool. I always love um, any time that uh, that you know art classrooms in particular, but really when schools get that kind of visibility, I think it can be so valuable. Um, and especially now, I'm sure that you know. Uh, you know, with with all the stuff that's happening with COVID, you know, positive press about schools is really valuable. And here is this, you know, Hillsborough High School, which has, you know, if you grew up in Nashville, and I grew up in Nashville, you know, um, my understanding of Hillsborough always was, a, you know, like I was always jealous of those kids went to Hillsborough because it's on the west side of town. It was near Green Hills. And I grew up over in Inglewood. And so I always, you know, so it, for me, it always had real positive um, associations. And and, um, you know, but with school being out, I just think how cool is it for those kids to be able to text their friends and say, I'm on the news or I'm on Nissan Ontario's Twitter feed or and that it's just going to keep happening. Right. Like it's just going to keep building and building and building and building. And, you know, just those unique things. So talk, tell me just a little bit about like you have an active social media feed, um, but you also taught in a time before that needed to exist. Why make that transition? Why not just, ah, whatever. Who needs an Instagram page? Right. Um, well, when I first started, my first year teaching was 2004, and um, social media wasn't a real big thing yet. It was kind of still pretty new. And um, my seniors would graduate and I would say, stay in touch, email me, let me know how your life is going. And, you know, after a few years of that, they were like, Miss B, we don't email. Like, we're on Facebook. Just, just, just friend me on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, okay. So the, my students are the reason I got into social media in the first place, just so I could, you know, still be there and support them and, you know, be there for a referral or a reference if they needed one, which has happened many times over the years. They'll come back years later and say, can you please be my reference? Um, and then, you know, as Facebook started to not become the cool thing and become very political, I, uh, you know, switched over to Instagram, which I actually like better. It's more about the visuals um, and got rid of my Facebook. Though I don't feel I want all of the social media platforms, not trying to overcomplicate. Um, but I, I do feel that that's the best way. And then my teacher account that I had previously on Instagram, I got locked out of and I didn't fix it last year until the pandemic hit. And I was like, oh my God, I can't, I can't uh, communicate with my students. I can't, and I don't like that. So I restarted my teacher page just at the beginning of the pandemic and have been building it back. Um, but to be able to interact with my students and see what they're up to and just check in with their mental health even during this has been wonderful. Yeah, I find it to be really a really powerful tool. Um, and But I also know teachers that are just never going to make that change. It doesn't. It's not a good or bad. I'm just always interested in the people who have made that, um, how that can be important, why that can be important. For me, a perfect example is I would not have known to ask you about Nissan without seeing that. So it allowed me to do that research. Um, and then can you talk a little bit about your friend that worked for Nissan and kind of in our pre-conversation, our pre-interview, when you were talking about how, um, you know, we, we had joked about where we had joked, you'd talked about art not being a tested subject. And then we started having this conversation, how it's, it's the, the very nature of your kids being on your Instagram is it's its own authentic assessment. The fact that it's going to be at the football game and all their friends are going to see it is way more powerful of an assessment than a test that goes somewhere and gets graded in a thing. But you said you had a friend that worked for Nissan that really, um, when she started talking about all of the different things, it really, um, it really validated what you do as an art teacher in all the ways you talk to your students. Yeah, that wasn't my friend that I know from Nissan. That was actually um, oh, the right. color of the gotcha. designer. Sorry. Um, yeah, yesterday was 
so great. We had a Zoom meeting with my students and um, Nicole Fonseca. She is the lead color designer for Nissan. She's out of San, San Francisco, actually. But um, it was such a wonderful conversation about the real world application of the arts. And she told us about how she got started with her job, you know, she was interested in architecture, she was interested in fashion, she followed all these people, and she gave us specific references to designers that she used to love on Instagram, um, and she draws her inspiration still from social media, um, and um, she talked about, you know, the programs that she uses, and how she um, needs to do a lot of research, and she needs to create multiple drafts and get feedback, and why that is so crucial and important in her job. Um, and so my students, I was like, thank you so much for validating my entire curriculum right now because um, that is what I teach. You know, I teach my students to do research and then to do drafts and then to get feedback. And, you know, and I, I do that because I was a CTE teacher for so long, for 11 years in Massachusetts before I moved here that teaching for real-world application is how I became a teacher, and it's why I became a teacher. So now that I've made the switch to uh, fine arts, visual art, it still has to be um, an important piece of my curriculum for me because I know that it validates to my students the purpose of art in the world and in their own lives. So whether or not they become a designer or photographer or videographer of some kind, they live their lives in those things. And so having a better understanding of why those are important is, is enough for them to become more invested in what I'm teaching. That ties in so just puzzle perfect with what Beth Ripmeyer said this Reitmeyer said this week, she's talking about teaching elements and principles of design to kids. Almost, this was my read of it, as like the moral implication of what elements and principles of design can do. If you really do understand unity versus chaos or unity versus diversity, and you can actually apply that to real life, then you can understand that it is better for a group of people to be unified, like it's better for a picture to be unified versus it being chaotic, but also understand where chaos can be fun in life too. And, and it was really, really interesting. It was a slightly different angle, but still about how arts and arts education, like teaching kids how to be, um, have a really critical eye and a really thoughtful approach to a studio practice while they're in high school, it's gonna make them a better heart surgeon. You know, She's gonna become a better business owner Right? She's going to become a better writer. She's going to become a better um, politician who serves her constituency because she's thought really deeply about all of these things um, that are all about communicated, communicating and sharing and creating community. If we go back to Beth's idea of like making a work of art in and of itself is outreach and we teach kids how to do that well, then that artist that leaves to your classroom, she's going to be the kind of politician we want to vote for regardless of party because she's going to be doing these things because she wants to serve the people and the needs that they have. So I just think that's really interesting that two back-to-back -back conversations, two different people, um, teachers um, are talking about that, just how important that is. And, and I think that that probably rings true with like every art teacher we know is like, this is so important, right? Um, and it, we ultimately are the most tested subject because if this is true, if what, we, if what we believe about our classes is true, the real assessment is like what kind of people are coming out of our classrooms, what kind of kids are coming out of our classrooms. Um, these are all big ideas, which makes me think about your nameplate. And let's go back to that a little bit. How did you become the president of ideas? or issues they're trying to work out and I give them some solutions to try 
I don't have to do the work and then they <laughs> come back to me and they tell me how it went and I can try to troubleshoot again or um, and it was kind of a joke you know but it is now what I do as a teacher so my nameplate was a graduation gift from one of my roommates during that conversation and I've had it on my desk all 16 years um, and that is what I do like the students come I give them some ideas, I watch them work through them, and I give them more pointers, and then, you know, I'm in a beautiful place, especially now at Hillsborough. We have a brand new school, and it's the most beautiful art room I've ever seen. I can't wait to one day be in it with students. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, you guys are getting the remodel. That's, that's really, that's exciting. Wow. Yes. I mean, my first 11 years, I taught in a windowless classroom of cinder blocks. So to have a wall of windows and natural light and three sinks, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make other art teachers jealous. I have a storage room that could be a classroom in itself. It is huge. I have brand new supplies. It's literally a dream situation, minus the fact that we're not there and there are no kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to say to you something that I wish people would say more to art teachers is that I don't think you should ever feel guilty about this incredible classroom you have, right? Like, and not just because you did your time in eleven in a in a cinder block cell with no windows. Um, and I think that most art teachers, when they don't have that, really are like almost jokingly like that must be nice. But I think that they really do love it that other people have that. And I've taught in a, a brick block room with no windows, and then I taught at Father Ryan that had beautiful natural light, and I taught in a portable with no running water. You know, I've done all the things. So I'm always excited when people tell me about that they have. Because it's like, wow, like Hillsborough High School, like they got it right. They have, uh, you know, a highly educated, like passionate person in the room. And the, and, the, and the kids are wonderful. And then the space, the resources meet all those. It's going to be awesome. So that's really, so I don't, I don't think you should feel any guilt at all. Um, and, uh, and I'm just happy that that's really exciting um did you have any input on that design um i didn't because that came from the previous art teachers um last year was my first year at hillsborough okay. so the construction project had started before then i see i see well we didn't have input on the tables and chairs though because last year before they ordered the furniture the other art teacher and i were given the plans uh, to approve and we were like um yeah we don't want desks <laughs> we're not even high tables that can withstand some abuse right. and some schools that we can push in and stand up if we want to and yeah. yeah so that was good to be able to double check before so you all you you share you have a department of how many in the art fine arts department um so there are two visual art teachers okay two theater teachers teacher band director we have cte digital design and we also have cte audio and visual oh really cool um that's that's really that's really awesome um do you all when you sorry we're getting into the weeds here but our teachers are listening to this and so it's okay are do you guys plan together that whole group or do you just plan with your the visual art teacher showcase at the end of the year that we all participated together and um, last year I was actually teaching digital design um, with my CTE license I have both licenses so oh, cool. um, so um, this is my first year teaching full fine arts with Hillsboro um, but yeah absolutely we are always talking and collaborating and um, there's so much connection already that exists that it's really easy to do that and I'm grateful to have such a great group of people to work with who are all like highly passionate about what they teach. Man, when everyone's why is the same, it's really wonderful. It really it is, is wonderful. Um, that's that's really exciting to, to hear about that because I really do, um, I really do think it it's really great when you take a, a, a school like Hillsborough High School. You know, my mother-in-law, who's in her 70s now, went there in high school. And it was kind of the place to go when she was a kid. You know, it was like this cool place. And so 
I just love when, when, when old public schools, any schools, but particularly in Nashville, again, with just thinking about COVID and thinking about just the tumultuous nature of the conversations about schools, I'm always excited when any school feels like they're catching this, you know, like you guys are going to open, not only post-vaccine, post you're going to get back to it, but you're going to get back to it in this long overdue facelift of this building. Yes, um, it's so wonderful. We actually have our own wing. We're all together in one part of the building, and it's just, it's so, so nice. I can't wait until we're all back. Yeah, that's really great. And just, you know, of course, teacher to teacher, I'm really grateful for you all, but also just for kids, right? Like kids that go to that school, like that they're going to have this space that's world-class, which is so important and, and so um, needed, I think. Um, can you talk just a little bit, I just got really excited about your thesis. So you just, congratulations, you finished your master's in art history or art education? It's a master's in art education with a focus in leadership. Okay. And tell us a little bit about your thesis that you... Sure. Um, so it was a wonderful program. I got it online through Boston University. And every week we would be sent, you know, like the normal 15 articles to read. And I would always want to spend like way more time with the article than I had time for. Um, but there was one article one week that really popped out to me. And it was by Dr. Sharif Bey. He's a sculpture teacher at Syracuse University. And... He talked about the pedagogy of Aaron Douglas and Hallie Woodruff and how they used their pedagogy as a form of social justice. Um, for those of you who don't know, Aaron Douglas was like the premier visual artist of the Harlem Renaissance, and he started the art department at Fisk, where he taught for almost 30 years, um, Fisk University here in Nashville. Um, and I thought that was really interesting since I'm here in Nashville now, and I thought, how come I haven't heard more about Aaron Douglas? I've been an art student for a long time. I've been in college twice, and I really don't know anything about him. Why is that? So um, having done a lot of the art crawls, I knew several artists from Fisk and from TSU. And so I started to wonder where Aaron Douglas's pedagogy went, and did it transfer and live on to today's uh black male artists or black artists that are creating work here in, in Nashville. So um, I started to connect the lines and do some research, and I found that Aaron Douglas had a student named Gregory Ridley, and Gregory Ridley was an art teacher at Fisk and TSU for 30-plus years who um, was an artist in his own right and created social justice work, but also taught that to his students um, as a form of communication and as a form of uh, informing the public and getting a message out, right? So then Gregory Ridley had two students, one named Sam Dunson and one named Jamal Sheets. Sam Dunson is an amazing, amazing visual artist um, and professor at TSU. And Jamal Sheets is another amazing artist who um, uh, is the gallery director at Fisk University. And their work addresses the same social justice issues, but in their own personal stories. Um, I then connected Jamal Sheets to senior at Fisk, AJ Thompson, who's a member of the mural group North Studios, who creates a lot of um, social justice themed murals around Nashville, including immigration rights, and um, they have a civil rights leader um, mural uh, over near Magruder. And then Omari Booker was a student of Sam Dunson. Omari Booker is another local Nashville artist who creates a lot of social justice themed work. Um, I actually have used his work twice this year in my curriculum with my students. And um, it was really amazing to see um, how this pedagogy from the 1930s continues on today. And both AJ Thompson and Omari Booker, the last two artists in my um, thesis, are teachers, and they are continuing it 
and moving it forward. I could have written so much more. There were so many connections of other artists, but my professor that I was working with was like, we gotta, we gotta pin this down a little bit. <laughs> because you could write like a whole like... Um, this is not where you're the president. This is not where you're the president of ideas, Brianna. Like you're the president of finishing this paper and that exactly. needs to, you're gonna have to put the president of ideas in a different box for right now. <laughs> You could be the, yeah, when you're the, when you're the president of writing a book, you can then do the other thing. But right now we're president of writing this paper. That's really cool. Just real quick. I know why, you know why, but why is it so important to not just show Mari's work, to not just show Dojo's work, to not just show North Collective's work, to not just show Sam Dunson's work, to not just show Brandon Donahue's work. Or to not just show Donna Woodley's work. Like, why is it important to show Carol Walker's work and, um, you know, all of these incredible black artists? Why is it important to show their work all the time and, and, and show their work in your classroom and, and build it in when it's not Black History Month? Well, Black History Month is discrimination, right? And so isn't Women's History Month. It means the rest of the year you're not being inclusive about those things. And, um, you know, so much of our history has been whitewashed and things, stories have been purposely omitted, including artwork and artists. And I think that we have a responsibility as art teachers to find these omitted histories and artworks to have a more authentic story to tell our students about their own history and to find their place in the world and as an artist. Yeah, I'm actually working with Omari tonight. We're doing a thing through the Educators Cooperative to kind of talk about just that thing. So I just, when you when we were in our pre-interview and you talked about that, I just wanted to kind of get your take on that. It's really exciting. I think a lot of art teachers are really starting to, to do that more. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of really powerful conversations that are happening, but I'm really, I think one of the things to do is to make sure that we're like pointing that out when it is happening. And it sounds like you're doing that in your classroom, which I... I think is really fantastic. Um, we could just to add on this spring, um, Allison Ross, who's the visual arts director for Metro National Public Schools, um, she got together a small group of us, and we collaborated to compile um, digital resources for our Metro teachers on um, Black artists, both nationally, internationally, and locally. Um, and all of the information that they would need about these artists, the type of work they do, the mediums they work with, and then links to all of their history and, and video sites. And then we were also tapped again later in the summer to create the visual virtual curriculum for Metro because even though they adopted Florida Virtual School, high school art was not a part of that. So um, we had about five days to make that work, but it was very helpful to use the resources we had created in the spring and as I go through my units in Art One, I continuously see those diverse artists being included, which is so wonderful. That's really cool. That's really, really cool. And what a great um, opportunity. And I love it that Allison had that vision to, to really pull that in there and that you had the voice and people felt comfortable like making sure like, hey, um, you know, this, if we get a chance to rewrite, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's try to be a lot better than we did it the last time or the, you know, and, and then be better the next time and continue to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, so I would love to get that resource from you. Is that, Absolutely. is it on Metro's site or is it like? Um, it's in our, our teacher resources, but I can um, definitely send you links or PDFs to all of these resources. I would, I would love to get those up on the, you know, I'll, and I can work with Allison to make sure she's cool with it, but I would love to get it on the Tennessee Art Education Association um, website under our, um, we're, we're really revamping our educational, like that part of the website where there are resources. And I think that could be really cool to kind of just show that example of how a school district, how one school district is doing that. Um, we could talk for hours. Um, we may have to have a part two of this podcast, but we've got about seven minutes left on the our one hour, um, our one hour uh, time. So let's talk about things you're grateful for right now. So we're kind of in these conversations with an object that you're grateful for, a person you're grateful for, and a place you're grateful for. And for all of Brianna's friends and family that are listening, I'm putting her on the spot. 
I'm sure she's grateful for all of you. So if you if she doesn't say your name, just to, you know, just just say your name when she says whoever's name she's gonna say. Um, so let's start with an object that you're grateful for. Um, I mean, the first thing that pops to mind is coffee, honestly, and like that's that's not pandemic specific. That's been a that's been a constant in a in in, in a hilarious way. Um, I know how much of a problem it is because it reoccurs in my students' artwork. Um, when I used to do a film festival, uh, one of my groups of students created a film called A Day in the Life of Miss Bertzell, and uh, the entire film I had a coffee cup in my hand. Um, and then when I taught elementary school, whenever my kids would draw a picture of me, I had a coffee cup in my hand as well. So coffee is the first thing that pops to mind. Um, I think a person that I'm grateful for, I mean, you right now or just in life you can you could you know Lakeisha Moore chose her ancestors some people have asked if they can get a, a plus one and say two people there are no rules here so okay I mean there's so there are so many to pick from I'm just gonna go with the first one that popped in my head which was my grandmother um, she encouraged creativity in me creativity in me in a very young age and whether it was singing which I also love to do or um, creating artworks she would do whatever she could to support it and she was a um, a single woman who supported herself for many many years and she was my role model growing up um, to to embrace um, all of my dreams I'll, I'll say it that way it sounds very cheesy but she um, she was a shoe factory worker. In, pa in fact, my parents were as well. My entire family were factory workers. Um, they, no, nobody went to college before me. And um, the women in my family just, you know, kind of because of the generations they grew up in, I think, were just like, you know, you graduate high school, you get married, you have a family, and that's just what happens. Um, and they didn't really strive for anything bigger or, you know, have these goals. So. Um, she was that person that always encouraged me. And even when I went to art school finally, um, and I don't think anybody in my family understood it because they were like, you're taking out these loans and what job are you going to get? And I don't understand it. You know, it was these hard conversations, but my grandmother would always just like stop by with a cake or some food and she would look at my artwork and I would say, what do you think? And she goes, it doesn't matter what I think as long as you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about that when, when she said, you know, I would love for Brianna now, who's the president of ideas, to have that conversation again with her when she says, it doesn't matter what I think, because you totally would figure out a way to get her to tell you, now that you have all these years of teaching, you would totally be able to be like, that's a teenager response, Grandma. Look, don't worry about what I think. I'm not going to judge, you know, because I'm sure a lot of that was one true. She probably was trying to say, hey, don't worry about me. Don't worry about what your your old grandma has to say. You you go be you. But there was probably a part of it where she felt like she just didn't know what to say and didn't want to. So she was like, here's this cake. Eat it. I love you. You know, um, exactly. yeah. What about a what about a place that you're grateful for?
I mean, I always call it a heart disease. I have a heart disease. Like, <laughs> I'm like, anybody else with this much education? And like, I have the ability to go be a designer or videographer. Ooh, it looks like we lost Brianna there just for a second. We lost you there just for a second. But look, we have 20 seconds left. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We can chat after the timer's up. And thank you all for listening to another episode of The Art of Outreach.